dickheads! We've got a special pink laser beam of truth coming to you today from all over the globe. Partially from China with Evan Lampy, who is also a Philip K. Dick podcaster and scholar. So this is a really nerdy discussion over two hours going through PKD's books 5 through 10 in his bibliography. So just reviewing the last couple books that we've done with uh, Evan Lampy, just me and Lampy, just getting all uh, crazy uh, PKD on you. But uh, enjoy the episode, dickheads. Joining us on the Dickheads podcast today, our, our first return interview, Evan Lampy, back to talk about phase two of the Philip K. Dick uh, bibliography, or at least the novels. And um, sorry, I got. I it's great to be back. Yeah, welcome back, Evan. Um, we're going to talk today. Let's start with time out of joint, and we're going to go into in depth, like your thoughts and feelings. Now, everybody can go and get a real more detailed look at uh, your feelings with your podcast, and we'll talk more about that later. But in the meantime, I, we want to get a meeting of the minds with the dickheads and, you know, see how I've listened to all of them before I, I had this philosophy that I didn't want your podcast to influence ours, but we do things so differently. I thought that's okay now. And... <laughs> But we're really excited to have you on. So give me your first initial thoughts on um, Time Out of Joint. When did you first read it? And uh, what were your first initial thoughts of it? Oh, I don't know. Like With so many of these dick novels, I I also told this story last time. I think I did. I, I was first reading Philip Dick when I was in graduate school. Actually, there was like a space in my graduate school career where I was you know, chasing a woman to Oregon. And I was like working in factories and, and things. I took a semester off or a year off from my graduate studies and I spent a lot of time at the public library and I was just pulling books off the shelf and reading a lot of, uh, science fiction and, and Philip K. Dick. And I must have read it at some point in, in that period of time. Um, yeah, this one though was fairly memorable. I, I remembered it quite a lot, but, um, it was really that first part of the novel that, that struck Clearly in my mind, the kind of idyllic 1950s delusion that the the character Ragglegum, right, that he's in. Yeah. Right. It wasn't until I came back to it later that I noticed that this is so much a story of the, of the frontier, and of which is something that Dick was writing a lot about in the stories throughout the 1950s. Um, but I, I, for, for me, I think that's the most important thing about this this story now is really what it's trying to say about the frontier and the tension between Earth and the moon and kind of where the story goes in the second half. And, you know, so much is, in fact, the interest of so many people is that first half of the story, right? This idea that someone is in basically a zoo, right, and being controlled and observed, and that, that setting it in that 1950s suburbia, right? And even that Truman Show is kind of seen as sometimes an adaptation of Time on a Joint. 
Yeah. And, you know, um, here's a funny thing for me. When I read it here for the podcast, it was the first time I had ever read Time Out of Joint. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I just never read this one before. And um, I didn't have any idea what the plot was about. I had no idea that, you know, I had somehow managed to be spoiler-free before I read Time Out of Joint. Okay. And so the, the twist actually worked for me because I had never been told that I had this Truman Show thing. And because of the title being called Time Out of Joint, I just assumed that there was some kind of weird time travel thing going on. And so I was looking for something else. And so the, 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 the twist actually got me. I'm wondering how, did it work for you when you read it the first time? Or did you know it was coming? Oh, I think I must have known it was coming because I, I never protected myself from spoilers. I still don't. <laughs> so I always look up the plot beforehand, usually. So I, I must have known it was coming. Right. Well, um, so yeah, it actually did work for me uh, in the sense of that I, and I don't think, I'm not sure. I think the reason it worked for me is because I just, I was looking for something totally different. And so I kept looking for reasons with like things with like the light cord and the things like that, that, he was, um, and I had read Martian Time Slip, so I thought w this was an early version of, of, um, like the kind of the time slippage that we, that we see there later on in, in, um, Dick's career. But, uh, yeah, some of the things with, uh, with the frontier aspect, I know, um, are, are really huge in your interpretation of, of time out of joint. And I think for us, we kind of debated whether this this early suburban aspect of Time Out of Joint was, you know, Anthony found it boring. Larry and I both liked it. I'm wondering how you felt about um, a, a little bit more deeply about what Philip K. Dick is trying to say about the family here in Time Out of Joint. Oh yeah, I well, the family is is part of but the whole the whole suburbia picture. Um, of course, Regal Gum is crazy, mm -hmm. and he's he's insane, and his insanity is in this this kind of pristine world of the fifties. And this is something Dick comes back to so often. And since you mentioned uh, Martian time slip, there is a parallel here in that you have characters who are stuck in a moment of time, mm -hmm. right? And in here, he's stuck in his past, essentially his childhood. And Martian time slip, the character is stuck in his older age, right? Because right? that, that, that boy, he spends the whole time seeing what the world will become, right? And he, right. And see, he doesn't see the idyllic uh, 1950s pristine world. He sees slums and decay, right? Right. Yeah, I guess you'll get to that novel. Well, we're point. actually recording that this week. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, so there is, I think, a parallel there. Right. And, and time does play a role here. It's, it's, He's living in his past, right? It's, mm. it's not kind of he's predicting the future. I mean, that's when you have the, the deja vu experience. It's kind of like, well, my experience in the future is a premonitions. Um, in fact, I just got off a podcast about the bus conductor with uh, the sci-fi audio mm -hmm. people. And that's about a premonition, right? That's the, the room for one more story, right? right? You get, you, you got that eerie feeling walking in the elevator and the elevator ends up crashing. Or in this case, it was a, a bus. Um, but anyways, uh, I think Dick just thinks the, the suburbs are weird, which is, I think it's interesting that he lives so much of his life in these kinds of areas that he thinks weird, mm. which it's kind of like, I guess, parallels Regal Gum's experience a little bit. Well, um, yeah. And something that's interesting, cause 
one of the differences in what what you do and what we do is that we go into a lot of the history of how Dick was writing and publishing and like the aspects of of the that and what's really interesting is this is one of the first books that um after Don Wolheim who was his major editor at the time rejected this book he went ahead and still managed to publish it and actually found a bigger more prestigious publisher and actually got his first hardcover book it wasn't marketed as science fiction it was marketed as wasn't it a novel of suspense or a story of suspense or something like that and um so i'm wondering if this freedom from don wolheim if you're seeing aspects of um being freed up from the editor that had done pretty much all of his earlier novels to to this one i wonder yeah, yeah if you see that in time out of joint no i think i think so and what we can think about this when we look at like Vulcan's Hammer or Dr. Futurity, which were really novels that fit closer with World Jones Made mm-hmm. and Solar Lottery, those, you know, or Man Who Shaved. It fits closer with those novels. This fits closer with the mainstream novels he was trying to write mm-hmm. in the late 50s, early 60s. And that's the case with a lot of the 60s novels where they're just novels about people and their lives and the kind of weirdness of their lives. The difference is one has like robots or, you know, set in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> environment or something. But otherwise, it's the same kind of stuff, right? If you think of Clans of Elfane Moon, which is a novel just about a bickering divorce couple who gets back together, essentially, right. right? And But then it's got this bizarre setting in it. But he's kind of telling the same stories in the mainstream story, fiction, as he is in some of these. So that gets you, you, you mentioned earlier the family in this novel, right? Mm-hmm. I, I guess the blacks are the clearest example of, of a family here, right? And they're totally right. fake. So right. I just got the image. I, I tried to put myself in Dick's head and I don't know as much about where he was, the Dave Davis biography or what he was doing when he was writing each of these works. But, you know, he must have met his neighbors at one point and just thought their marriage was a sham and right. weird and, and, and just put it on the page because he does it so often, right? You get the sense, especially when you read his stories, that every time his wife nagged him about something, he writes it down into a story. Right. And it just makes it a side, you know, gives it a sci-fi twist. Yeah, and, um, and so it was promoted as, quote, a novel of menace. Was Novel menace. Yeah, I'm not sure what that yeah. means. <laughs> but that's how uh, the publisher um, promoted it. But... Uh, yeah, and so and he, you know, he did say a lot about how the issue with Time Out of Joint was that it was a novel about fake reality, and that was very much what he, you know, set out to do. And obviously a lot is made out of, you know, it seems like the twist has much less punch when you're in a post-Truman Show world because they obviously stole the concept for... I mean, stole might be a really intense word. I don't know if they read Time Out of Joint or not, but it's the same concept. Um, although here we've got so many more interesting things that he's saying about society. When, when you've got the war with the moon, right? And the world building here is actually really good. Some of it's a little corny, like the jive talk and the weird stuff oh, yeah. like that. <laughs> but, um, uh, which was a little, <laughs> But uh, so much of the conflict between the lunatics and, you know, uh, Raggle Gum and, like, 
where you know, or the people that are um, fooling Raglgum is really interesting. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about um, the world building there and what 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 that says. What what Dick was trying to say there. I don't know. I just think I think the bigger twist for, I mean, if there's actually two twists, I think, in the story. One is that this this world is sham, right? That's mm -hmm. twist one. The second twist is that our hero sides with the lunatics who are nuking Earth, right? The so he kind of changes sides by the end. By the, and the this all happens like in the very very last chapter where he switches his loyalties to the lunatics. And it seems to be when you know what they're fighting about, right? They're fighting essentially about the, the right to have a independent frontier, the right to explore the cosmos, right? And you think about novels that he was writing earlier, like what's it, the world Jones made, which is all about like, are we going to have a frontier? Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know how much you guys are out in California. So is this, you know, this idea of the California being the end of the frontier, right? That, you know, and how important that was to American pulp writing in the, you know, in that, in the early 20th century, the world that made Dick, right? That's, it's the world still coming to grips with the end of the frontier, right? The, you got the Westerns and, and you got, of course, science fiction kind of extending this idea of a frontier. But it, it seems to me that the U.S. is really grappling with that. And Dick here, for all his pessimism later in his life, about the about the frontier, about uh, space travel, the kind of the ennui of all the, all that, which you see in some of his later works. There's a whole lot of optimism in in his view of the frontier early on, and it, mm. and I think it's expressed here in this story with the character siding with with the lunatics. Um, well, but there's another. When was Moon as a Harsh Mistress written? When was that? When did Heinlein write that? Uh, that was before Starship Troopers, so it would have been in the late fifties, I believe. But we're, we're looking. What no, it's about? a. Yeah, I just looked it up. Nineteen sixty-six. So this idea of the oh, moon so nuking Earth in kind of a struggle for independence was. It? So I don't. I'm not saying Heinlein stole it from from Dick here, but <laughs> that same plot device of of the people on the moon bombing Earth mm -hmm. um, is in both stories. Well, um, I've been thinking about the moon as a harsh mistress lately. Right. And so, and so later, so Ace, one of the reasons why Don Wolheim, um, I guess rejected this novel was that, um, he wanted to, um, he wanted to, I guess, make Raglgum look like more insane, I guess, or, um, try, try, try to do that. And, I think this is the first time that PKD really kind of stood up to Walheim and his ideas and said, like, I, I just don't really want to do that. And he took this book elsewhere. So I think, you know, kind of one of the things that we decided about tr Time Out of Joint is Time Out of Joint is a, a major step in the evolution of Philip K. Dick, not just the writer, the artist, but of his work in general, that it is a huge step forward, whether you like you know, so, you know, we had mixed feelings on Time Out of Joint. I think Larry and I liked it and Anthony didn't. Um, mm -hmm. and, but either way, you cannot deny that this is a major step forward in, in, in the Dick bibliography. I don't know how you feel about that in, in the camp. No, I, I agree. I, I think it, it, it certainly is. I think in some ways it connects to other themes that we talked about the last time we, we, we sat down together. 
you know, this idea of like false realities. That's not new for, for Philip Dick. Mm-hmm. You know, like in Cosmic Puppets, you have it, but there it's just like, we're just victims of, 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 of gods, right? Mm-hmm. Playing a game. We're just kind of small people str- struggling to survive and understand reality between the struggles of the gods. Eye in the sky, I actually, I might say eye in the sky is much of a, a transition here because it's, it's all about like subjectivity and subjective experiences. Yeah, but so I, you get four different realities and they're all fully developed and understandable. And there's weaknesses in that story, right? That it's not paced that well and, and things like that. But it's well, all well, about human subjectivity and the difficulty of understanding each other. Well, I think a lot of the weaknesses of Eye in the Sky come from Don Walheim's influence mm-hmm. and the fact that Dick wouldn't stand up to him and the fact that he wanted to make it Christianity. So then he brings in this weird version of the Baha'i faith that's not even accurate to, to the Baha'i yeah. faith and is bonkers. And then, I, to me, that weakens some of Eye in the Sky because it's not the full vision that PKD wanted to do. But I think what we've got here in Time Out of Join is, is just, we talk a lot because of the way our podcast talks about Dick, the process a lot of the times, so much more than yours does. And we just, we're just sick to, to death of hearing all these stories about Don Wolheim fucking up these books, you know? Oh. <laughs> and, and here's a chance where the first time where he just said no, and we'll talk more about that whole scenario with Man the High Castle, because that was really the time where, and then Don Wolheim proceeded to shit all over the book, um, when, when Dick took it elsewhere. But this relationship that they had, I think this freedom that he had in time out of joint to not, um, and it's funny too, because people forget, because with Man in the High Castle and time out of joint, and Martian Time Slip, where they're a little bit more mainstream, people tend to forget that there's a moon colony nuking Earth, and Mm -hmm. in Man of the High Castle, there's Martian Nazis, and, you know, there are these things. So I think that it still connects to the pulp stuff, just like you said, but we've just seen such a such a cosmic, or or just such a huge shift for, for PKD, and I think that makes Time Out of Joint so important. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 politically very important too. Um, in in those like in Eye in the Sky, there is like the the Cold War politics to it, but it's so much more visceral here mm-hmm. because it's really targeting that that bougie lifestyle in the midst of 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 a world that's on the brink, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's still this is still the period of Cold War brinksmanship. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's significant. He spends quite a lot of time in the novel talking about civil defense, right? Of course, Raggle Gum is kind of part of, 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 a, of a civil defense, you know, un, unwittingly, right? That's how they try to get him back on board, right? It's through civil defense classes. Mm-hmm. But they, they spend a lot of time there in the discussion of, of civil defense, which is so distant from what well, we, that, with that our world, reality, right? yeah. It's like, like, even like that, that kid playing with the, was it the, the nephew, right? I think it's the nephew playing with that little, the crystal radio, yeah. right? And you start getting up the, the weird, the weird signals uh, and, yeah. Real weird signals. And that's, that's kind of, but it should be, they're such in a bubble. And I think that's how we saw suburbia, right? So there's, the, right. it works in the novel just as a fully understood, Understandable, I guess, 
delusional reality created through political power for a specific purpose, well, right? Well, what's really but interesting... It's a, it's, a con, it's, a, it's a stronger commentary, I think, on the world he's living in than maybe some of these others, like Eye in the Sky, where it's just kind of, they throw it in, like, oh, there's the suspicion about your wife or something by, by the employers. Yeah, and I think the civil defense thing is is a really good example of that's something that is hard for people in this day and age to understand because we're not living that like threat of nuclear war at any given time, and I think that is an interesting time capsule for uh, yeah. time out of joint. Well, it's interesting because we found this quote where he was talking about some of the original inspiration, and it is similar to what you were saying about how he was looking at the neighbors, but the story <laughs> he tells is PKD told a story about how the whole scene at the... Um, at that concession stand where he's like, get me a beer, right? Which was one of Larry, Larry's favorite parts that um, he felt he was at that scene is autobiographical where he was at some little league game or something. And he had this like weird experience where he wanted to be able to just yell at them and say like, I want this other thing that's not available. And the, the fractured reality thing kind of came out of that. But he also said um, that um, he was really influenced, again, and this was one of the big influences on Solar Lottery, which is uh, Van Vogt's World of Null A, where he said this idea of an implanted reality. And he said, a lot of people think that I was taking acid to write this book, but I wasn't taking acid. I was taking Van Vogt. <laughs> and I thought that was a good quote. And so I think that this false reality is basically the, the, um, it's funny because it's a different false reality than the one that we got in Eye in the Sky, but it's just such a great version of, you know, of PKD and the theme of the false reality. And I th I just think it's a really good distilled way of that. Of telling Another, that. another aspect of this I, I really like is, the celebrity thing, I think it, it works out so well in the story in that this world is, is half make, right? Like they don't have Marilyn Monroe. Right. That's, I think that's the one example I remember, but there's other things too where it's missing things that were really in the 1950s just because if, you know, people forget, they, they forgot to include Marilyn Monroe or whatever. Right. But that, that, that conversation they're having where they're looking through the old magazines, right? That they found in like the sewer. They found these old magazines in the sewer, right? And they're looking through them. And it's like, I don't know her, or what's this? And it's, it's how I feel all the time talking maybe to young people, especially <laughs> yeah. now about pop culture, right? There's some new musician or new actor. I don't know who these people are anymore, right? I can't keep up. And we all have these gaps and that's the culture we live in moves so fast and is changing so, so fast that we don't have these benchmarks anymore. And, you know, we don't have the Marilyn Monroe's anymore. So it's, it's very prophetic in a way, I think, about how culture is very fluid and liquid. Yeah. And, and so that whole idea in Truman Show where, like, Truman is, like, the big star that everyone's trying to... That's all here with Rival Gum being the big star winning the yeah. prize in the newspaper and all that. It's all there. Um, I think more so too, we are seeing PKD being able to pull these different plot elements together in such a more cohesive way than he, than he was in the past. Like when he wrote World Jones Made, it's just like he took a bunch of plot elements and yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. it, and Time Out of Joints, where we're 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 seeing that for the first time. So. Um, okay, anything else on Time Out of Joint? Oh, before? This, I, th I don't know if this is the 
first, because I, I actually haven't read all the mainstream novels, and they probably wouldn't have this, but this has that ambiguous ending that's that kind of that twist ending that's a little fuzzy that you see, I, I guess, like in a scanner darkly. I'm trying to think of other stories that have this the ambiguous ending. I mean, you think this is kind of a Philip Dick trope, but he doesn't use it as much often as you might think, but he uses it here where it's at that final scene where you see someone and is it that, I don't have it with me. Is it the Keitelbein, the name, mm-hmm. yeah. like the, the two characters he confuses, right? So right. there's kind of that question, which reality are we in? Well, I guess it's Ubik. Ubik, he does this maybe most famously where the ending is like, you know, who, who knows? Right. We have no idea really what to make of that ending in, in Ubik. But here, he, he just kind of throws it out there, maybe as sort of a bit of a joke or a tease for the, the reader. Because I, I think if you take that out, this, the novel holds up. It doesn't need that. It's, yeah. it's just that, you know, what world am I in at this point? Well, um, like, but that, that's here at the end. Yeah. That's, it, a, that's something I don't remember seeing in earlier novels. Well, and, and we have a three-year gap between Eye in the Sky and Time Out of Joint. And it's interesting because we had that because he was trying to write the mainstream novels. Yeah. And and I think it's obvious that even though he didn't publish them at the time, I think the mainstream novels had an influence on his skill as a writer. Yeah. Um, um, here in Time Out of Joint. Anything else on Time Out of Joint that uh, we haven't brought um, up? Ah, uh, no. That's good. I, I, I wrote down all my notes. Oh, nostalgia. I didn't. One thing is just that, the t- again, kind of thinking about our, our present predicament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of stealing what Dick's saying and using it for our own purposes today, but you know, the right. toxicity of, of nostalgia, mm-hmm. right? There's really no value in, in living in the past. And for, for now, it's the eighties, right? Yeah. Pretty soon the nineties that, that we go back to. And. Oh, Captain Marvel kicked but off the nineties. You know, you know, so. The Stranger Things and the, 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 the It movie, all this, we see, this fascination with the 80s for some reason, which was a politically quite conservative, reactionary time in American history. And it's a, it's just because that's when people grew up, I guess, that are creating culture now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Dick's got a warning here about that, that, that nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's presenting here as a, a, basically a type of mental illness to live in, to live in one's past. Mm-hmm. And it's false. We don't remember the past the way it really was. I think that's another lesson here. Right. In this case, it's because it's constructed by other people who get it wrong, uh, get the details wrong. But, you know, whether it's constructed by others or ourselves. And of course, every, our understanding of the past is a collective creation. Anyways. All right. So we've had this hardcover, um, uh, release that was, um, got some mainstream attention. And then, um, uh, Dr. Futurity. <laughs> Um, which we jokingly kept referring to as Dr. Future Guy, um, in, uh, from time to time. But, uh, Dr. Futurity originally started as a short, a two thousand, or 22,000 word novella called Time Pond, which originally appeared at PKD's agency in 1953. So we kind of have to think about, uh, Dr. Futurity as a, product of 1953. Yeah, I think so. But that being said, uh, he did add quite a bit to it. Um, and so what are your overall thoughts on, I know you and I are one, are people who, um, 
value Dr. Futurity more than some people. Um, <laughs> right. I think the, this is Vulcan's hammer. They go, they go together that way. I think the yeah. people hate this tends to hate Vulcan's hammer as well. Yeah. And I, Give me your initial thoughts on Dr. Futurity. I guess my, my first, my response to that is if, I wonder if those people who really hate these novels had read like those early stories, if they read Variable Man or Souvenir, those stories he wrote at that same time period. And if you didn't like those, I could see you not liking what he's doing in Dr. Futurity. It is a mess though. That's, I guess I have to say that. I think this novel is a mess philosophically. I, I'm not even quite sure what he's doing. I kind of grok a little bit of what he's trying to do, but yeah, it's hard to pin down exactly. And it's not very consistent and it's a bit muddled. Right. Right, I think. And but if he would got this right, if he could actually clear down what he was trying to say, and I really want to know what that is because he doesn't come back to some of these themes that he introduces, like, like yeah. the interracial future, or I guess colonization is there in other stories. And I think even Game Players of Titan has is kind of inverted. But you know, this. This idea of Western colonialism creating the death cult, right? It's, you know, it's kind of politically pretty powerful when we think about like Atlantic history. I'm trying to, I'm trying to grapple with Lovecraft now and Lovecraft's uh, views of Atlantic history. And he's really, uh, he's got this anxiety over really the history of America because it's one hand is Anglo-American, right? Got British colonialism. In the Americas. On the other hand, though, it's it's the slave trade and it's immigration and it's diversity, which are the things Lovecraft feared so much. Um, and that's here too, right? Because because of colonialism, yeah, you get this death cult, but you also get this mixing. You get this multiracial future. You get the, mm. you know, it's you know. Do you, do you, and I don't quite know what he's trying to say about all of this, but there's something there. <laughs> right. That's why I find so frustrating about this this novel, because I I wish there was another work where he's like, I, finally he gets these themes right and he wrote it down. Right. I, I don't know. I don't think that novel exists. Well, and the, the problem is, is that there's kind of this white savior aspect at the end, right? Sure. And mm-hmm. and like so, all like the interesting and cool stuff that he does with the racial mm-hmm. ambiguous future get kind of fucked up when. When there's somebody there to be like, I shall save, you know, the, the past. And it becomes like this, I, I don't know, this, to us, that was one of the hard parts of Dr. Futurity. Yeah, I did. Yeah. For me, I liked that even though it's a flawed work, it introduces so many fucking wacky ideas and some so, so weird things. And even if they don't work, I, I just like that it's doing, like, bold and weird and interesting things. Whether how they work or not is, is you know, yeah. Yeah. I, you know. Another aspect of this that I can't quite keep my head around, but I, I for mm. for instance, this is a youthful culture. It's it's a young culture. And you know, sometimes I, I, I discuss with my coworkers, right, you know, about ageism. And my coworkers are all old older than me. Right, right now, mostly they're older than me, and they they think ageism is is old people not being able to get jobs, yeah, or you know, forced retirement, or something, or 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 the culture that obsessively uh, sexualizes youth. So it's these kinds of this is ageism. But you talk, you know, I guess I'm in the middle. But you talk to millennials, 
you know, for them, ageism is it's old people who have all the institutions or they, they control politics. They have all the money, right? It's, you know, it's, you get a, you get a college degree and you got all the student loan debt and you're working at Starbucks, right? That's how ageism experienced by them. And Dick writes about gerontocracies in other books in crack, uh, the crack in space, most notably. He, that's all about a society that's dominated by old people to the point where young people are literally put in cryogenic suspension until there's like, until they can find another planet. But here you have a culture that seems to idealize the youth, right? There, there's, no one wants to get old. Getting old is horrific. You know, everyone is young. Everyone's kind of young and beautiful, right? And engaged in physical activity and fighting and things like that. But at the same time, that whole culture, it, it comes from, centuries in the past right they weren't they weren't creators of it they're, they're in a sense victims of that so it, it's again I like what exactly he's trying to say about ageism and the conflict between the the institution and the and the youth there's something there it's like almost like the pre-persons is like an inverse of this but thematically they seem kind have you guys read pre-persons the short story no, no, I haven't read that one. But. Three persons, it's uh, anti-abortion. He wrote it right after Roe versus Wade decision, and he was attacked by feminists for writing it. But basically, it, he, it's an anti-abortion science fiction story about a future where basically until you're 13 or something, your parents can declare you an unperson and have you aborted. Oh. Right? Yeah. So it's... But there's that, some common theme in these things. Yeah. But, you know, it's... I don't know, and then it's mixed up with social Darwinism and this idea to try to create a master race through conflict, mm. right? Which I, I think that's his main critique of the West in the novel, right? Is that that's what the West brought to the world was this idea of, of progress through struggle, kind of social Darwinian idea. But that's not the fault of like the Spanish or Sir Francis Drake, right? Right. right. That's that's like a 19th, 20th century ideology. <laughs> All right. So, so so one thing that's interesting on the writing of the book. Um, again, trying to cross, uh, what you do and what we do. Um, so I found this quote where, um, he was asked if, uh, you know, he basically, he mentioned in several quotes that he was writing Dr. Futurity to please Don Wilhelm. And this is, comes in when he talks about the difference in writing Vulcan or Vulcan's hammer and writing man in the high castle. Um, he said that for writing Vulcan's Hammer and Dr. Futurity, I had an audience of one, Don Wilhelm. That's all he cared about. It was pleasing Don and getting it published. Whereas when he wrote Man in the High Castle, he wrote it for everyone and he didn't care. And so when he wrote Dr. Futurity, he basically, he wrote it for Don, but then there was a lot Don didn't like. And then we, I found this quote from PKD. Uh, because in Dr. Futurity, I had Christianity dying out and interracial marriages. Don disapproved of the Christianity dying out or talking of it dying out, and he definitely disapproved of the interracial marriages. So it seems like those aspects um, in the final draft, like that Wolheim had him dial back those things, just like he messed with Eye in the Sky. So it's interesting to think about, had a different editor who wasn't, uh, who was a little bit more forward thinking, a little more progressive. Mm -hmm. How different of a book we would have gotten with Dr. Uh, Future Guy. 
and uh, Doctor Futurity, and um, maybe Vulcan's Hammer. Even I'm not, I'm not. We'll get there eventually. I'll look at my notes for that. But Doctor Futurity could have been a really different book if if Dick was unchanged. And I'm wondering what you think. Um, have you ever thought about like the differences of what we could have gotten? You know. And do we well, see? I'd have to read. Uh, what I'd have to read to really think about that is Time Form, which I haven't mm-hmm. read. Have you guys got a look at that? Mm-hmm. Like uh, what was added? Because that would really be, I think, key to that. Because yeah, it's really hard uh, to find. I would say that at, at the end of the day, he's still going to be reworking Time Pawn, and he would, you know, he'd, yeah, he's got editorial concerns, but I, you know, he's not the kind of person who's going to rewrite the whole thing, right? He was in this time of his career, especially writing quite a lot. Yeah, Time Pawn's really hard to find. We did look for it. Um, we. Uh, the thing about Time Pond is that he was happy enough with Dr. Futurity that he basically, I know he said that he didn't want Time Pond out there. Mm-hmm. And he preferred Dr. Futurity. Right. However, I mean, when you look at all these changes that he was forced to make, he, he obviously really didn't like take kind of taking Christianity, the, the digs at Christianity out. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm assuming that in one of the drafts, we had a lot more of this interracial future. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think the things that Christianity are still sort of there, like the replacing the last rites with this kind of euthanizer. Mm-hmm. Right, the whole aspect of that, like the, the, you got the doctor there. There's this, of course, there's no doctors in the future, but you got these fixing ends. Then they, you know, you got to call the this guy, right? Well, mm-hmm. it's kind of like maybe the priest, right? Give last rites, but instead it's this ritual to, you know, to you know, to be killed. Yeah, and, and so here's the difference between Eye in the Sky and the difference in Dr. Futurity is that in the writing process, he had time out of joint being a success, and I think he was able to stand up to Wolheim a little bit more, so we still see aspects of that, but we know that he did cut some of that stuff down. Yeah, um, Yeah, and uh, so... Uh, yeah, so the the nature, you know, what's really funny is we joked a lot about how doctors are viewed in this book with the whole, like, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm amazing. And, um, and so we thought that the, like, doctors are amazing and the social Darwinism were really funny little things that, that were going on um, in this book. And, and... I, is this really the first time that he's really taken such a huge swing at social Darwinism? And do you think that that was a reaction to, I mean, Atlas Shrugged was out and, and all that stuff was, was becoming popular at the time, Maybe. right? Yeah. Look, probably in some of the stories, I think mm-hmm. there, there must be something. Um, I guess souvenir. If you read this, there's a short story souvenir. Yeah. I've read it. Of social Darwinism, mm-hmm. you know, where you have this planet where people kind of, Go into different clans and play act different cultures. It's more banal in Doctor Futurity, actually, because you have these clans, but they're they're kind of meaningless. There's no like culture associated with them because there's just a seems to be a global culture, right? And so the clans are just arbitrary, like the teams picked in school, right? Right. You're just in one, and that's the ones you fight for, and 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 all that. But out of that, you still get this idea of, of progress. So I think he he is making a more conscious critique of social Darwinism and the arbitrariness of nations. Probably, yeah. you know. Um, I thought that the shock at the white at his white face when he goes to the future was a really okay. great moment of of world building. 
Um, mm -hmm. And I, I really did appreciate some of those scenes. And I think that the world building here is actually really good. Um, and I think that because yeah. there, there's a lot of stuff that's not so amazing compared to his other books that the skill with which he did the world building here gets overlooked. Um, so I think that's one thing that he does really well in this book. So I don't know how you yeah, feel I, about it. I think so. I, I think it's, especially this, this system for reproduction and how, um, how they, they, they see societies progressing, I, I think, but they're not really right. There's kind of a stagnation here, a banality to this world. Um, but yeah, a lot of nice details about these different clans and, Everyone calling him sick, right? And mm -hmm. his shock of, of finding... No, I think one of the great moments in this is the shock of finding out that he's useless. Right? <laughs> right. I think there's an ongoing theme in Dick's work of just the need to have meaningful work. And this character is... When he gets to the future, he doesn't he doesn't care. He's like, great, everyone needs a doctor, so... <laughs> right. He completely ignores that medical knowledge would have advanced so much in 400 years. Well, and it's cool. Oh, everyone only a doctor. But then that's kind of silly, but the heart of it is he's not needed anymore, right? So now for the plot to work, he has to be needed in some other way. So then you have this, this group coming in and saying, well, we need you to save Corneth and all that, that plot part, the actual plot of the novel, you know, has, he has to be given a purpose. It would have actually could have been a stronger novel if he would have pushed farther this kind of the uselessness of his existence in the future. Right. Well, right, really, a, a fish out of water thing. Because so often in the fish out of water stories, you you have to give that person something to do. Mm -hmm. Right. It'd be a very brave writer to then actually just go with this. That well, you're, you're useless here, right? Well, yeah. I guess they did try to exile him right to the frontier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and and uh, Which was I think um, what was kind of funny too is that. Well, it shows that he was thinking ahead when he was writing, when he was structuring the novel that he had, like, because, you know, we kept joking about how ridiculous the, like, look at me, I'm such an amazing person, I'm a doctor, but it it's paid off later, so it was there for a reason. Yeah. Uh, some of the, I mean, it gets more wacky, pulpy sci-fi than we've seen in a while with, like, him, like, being shot to... Mars and then pulled back, right? Yeah. yeah I just wanted to make fair. sure that wasn't Vulcan's hammer, but it wasn't good. No, it is. It's this one. Yeah. No, yeah. I use this with uh, Manu Jape because that's also got some wow. weird kind of exile or something like you know, some other going off to some other planet. No, I think Manu Jape has the, all the people don't conform, right? They're sent off to some psych ward on another planet. Right, right, which we Sometimes were really upset that we didn't. But yeah, this definitely has more of the psych ward. <laughs> a place for the people who can't conform, though. It's the same idea, right? There's just yeah. a place for the people who can't quite fit into this world. Like, it's, it's kind of a frontier, I guess. Yeah, and and you know, as much as people are are in retrospect saying that Doctor Fusheri and Vulcan's Hammer are some of his worst, um. The, it, it got accolades from some respected science fiction writers at the time. Damon Knight, uh, Frederick Paul both wrote glowing reviews of Dr. Futurity, um, uh, at the time. Um, and like Frederick Paul said, um, they both said that some of the plot flaws were there. And they said, even though the plot flaws are hairy, what flaws the story have is really excessive trolling on of time paradoxes. So what most ever, what most 
everybody turns out to be turns out to be almost every anybody else, which is what Frederick Paul said. And then Damon Knight said uh there was frequent stylistic howlers, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> and unexpected vividness and power. So I mean, like at the time he was getting some respect for, for the mm-hmm. for the output of Doctor Futurity and um, you know, is it perfect? No. Uh, does it, does it come up with interesting ideas? This is one that I think that if you did a film adaptation that wasn't necessarily super faithful, this one in Vulcan's Hammer, I think you could take, if you had the right person who understood what Dick was trying to say, they could kind of translate it into modern sci-fi. You could do something really cool with, What's going on in Doctor Futurity and Vulcan's Hammer? Mm-hmm. I believe, but um, and I know you're not a big fan of many of the adaptations, and and you know, yeah, I have even watched too many of them. Yeah, never come up with Man in High Castle. I've not even seen a single episode of that. I saw the the intro opening credits once. That was the most <laughs> I ever saw that. I I, so, I would actually tell me what I'm missing. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I am only now watching season two, so there's season three and four, yeah, that I haven't gotten to. But um, I, I think I don't know about these adaptations. So at, on Sci-Fi Audio, we've done all of Phil K. Dick's Electric Dreams, and there's like one or two good episodes in that that series. Yeah, and the the movies, I don't know, they're <laughs> some 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 hold up, I guess. Um, I mean, Blade Runner is classic on its own, but it's it's fairly removed from the source material thematically yeah. and even just on the plot and the story. Yeah, so, that's true. Although I, don't know, I, I do want to see a good Philip Dick adaptation. Um, you don't like Scanner Darkly? Because I think Scanner Darkly. Yeah, I like Scanner Darkly. That's yeah. a good one. That's yeah. uh, probably the best. But I'm not even that. I don't. It doesn't have to be faithful. Yeah. Right? That's in my view. Yeah. We're if it gets the, the, yeah, the theme, um, just so I, I don't know. so I think this is it's funny because I have a bunch of quotes from different people about Doctor Free Charity, and I believe this is from you, um, where you said, uh, it Doctor Free Charity is one of Dick's most important books in highlighting his view of history and the nature of human progress. Was that you? Or, and how do you... Yeah, figure? it sounds like something I, I would have said. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it does say a lot of... It, he's never really talked about... At this point, we haven't seen something that really takes a grand view of, of history uh-huh. before. Yeah. As a historian, I'm sure that that would hit a sweet spot for you. Well, but this, the, the connecting of, you know, this most these most odious aspects of of Western civilization, social Darwinism and racial domination, mm. um, institutions that 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 tend to waste the lives of young people. I think that's an issue we're dealing with today. Uh, that they're rooted in in a past, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think that's that's it. But it's it's overall this this future. Uh, kind of the stagnation. I think that's what he fears. I think Dick, in this time of his career, and it's throughout the 50s, really, it's just this anxiety about stagnation. I think he sees part of that in the suburbs, to be frank. I, I think he sees a, 
a kind of seductiveness of mass consumer culture, of the television, the radio, and, and mass media, and the, the suburban life itself. I mean, that's what's kind of the sub-theme of, I think, of Time Wanna Join, is that there's just this kind of a stagnation here. And, you know, it's not so much Time Wanna Join, it's just there's a timelessness to it. Mm-hmm. Right? And that you need, you need change, you need history to progress. And they've created, in this novel, they've created a world where there is no future, really. It's just the same, right? It's just these tribes competing and the next generation of gametes gets cycled into the system. But institutionally, it's, it's dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know if the, like, the, these Native American resistors, this movement, are right that the way to fix this is to go back. I, I don't think so. I, you know, I think there has to be some kind of shock to the system. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think the frontier can provide that. But, you know, we're right now we only have this world, right? Right. So I think we got to I think one lesson of Dix is to beware the stagnation mm-hmm. of institutional stagnation. Yep. All right. So, yep. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Futurity. Uh, let's put a pin in that one. Any uh, last thoughts on Dr. Futurity? Well, that's that's most of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, fate is here. That's a theme he comes back to quite a lot, but you're going to get that in any kind of time travel story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So. All right. So, uh, and next we have uh, the infamous Vulcan's Hammer, which has been many times called the worst novel that Philip K. Dick ever wrote, and he didn't do much to defend it, um, mm-hmm. referring to it as a botched job, uh, word for word. Uh, many times. There are lots and lots of letters between Don Wilhelm and PKD that we have access to. So we know a lot about the writing of it. And, okay. um, he took, which was, it was originally, uh, it's another 1953, uh, novel. It was originally 20,000 words. So he doubled the length of Vulcan's Hammer from the original story. And, um, he called the original story a botched job. He said, um, then let's see where he said, um, it's funny because he has this letter. He's like, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to build up the best parts and eliminate the weaker parts. Well, no shit. Um, I believe the true body of good ideas lies in the first portion of the story. Um, about the first third, but the ending is terrible. So he was very, interested in changing the ending um but that was i think that's that's true so many of his early works though where they just have all these interesting ideas they get just kind of thrown out there onto the palette and then there's not really much he does with it right like the world jones made you have that wonderful subplot of the of the venusians of the scientists creating this venusian colony Mm. great stuff but it's just like thrown in a novel where there's a thematic connection there, but it's not really part of the clock in any significant way. Um, but I think that's a problem he ran into a lot in these, in these, I, maybe because he wrote writing so many short stories. Mm-hmm. He's good at like having an idea that he could express in three, four, five thousand words. And then with novels, he just kind of pieced them together. It really took him until Time Out of Joint and Man in High Castle to create more coherent novels. And he doesn't get, he still makes falls into that trap though in the later sixties. 
Yeah. Like the simulacrum is a great one where it's just another piece together story. Anyways, what else? Well, uh, well, well what, what he said about, um, yeah. what he said about the writing of it, he definitely quoted that he was frustrated with Don Wilhelm after Dr. Futurity and the changes that he had to make. He said, I admired Don and I had a rather long business relationship with him. But the time pawn rewrite made me uneasy. Now I have to say, his odd way of reacting, both in terms of what he said and when he said it, makes me fear this Vulcan's hammer job. From my standpoint, Don is an enigma. I honestly can't understand what will please him, but he is my audience. <laughs> so, he basically, you know, and then he, he writes at length about, um, you know, what he had to change. And then, um, uh, he said that Don Wolheim's notion of, quote, Phil Dick's true vocation being pulp sci-fi, basically, um, threw me off of my real work, which is, of course, the straight novel contract. So he didn't consider this real work at all. Mm-hmm. Like, he literally said the words, it's throwing me off of my real work. Which is really interesting to me that he really just saw this as a job. So unfortunately, you know, we have to look at Vulcan's hammer in, in, in that way. Well, he was—he couldn't get his mainstream fiction published, right? So yeah, he needed a sale. Yeah, and then in another another letter, he referred to Vulcan's hammer as his bread and butter work, um, which he said could only be marketed to Ace. Um, it wouldn't be, pra- it wouldn't be practical to send to anyone else for me to go, uh, with a wholly new sci-fi idea. Ace is my only market. Um, I'd rather, I want to do more psychological SF in the tradition of time out of joint, in other words, but it seems to me I must have a stronger assurance and Vulcan's hammer will help me do that. Blah, blah, blah. Anyways, those are some ideas on, or just some things that, you know, we know that he said about it. And so one of the themes that we really thought was interesting that gets kind of like mentioned in the beginning of Vulcan's Hammer is that the Atlanta psych labs, which is similar to what you were talking about, about the people getting in, um, uh, World Jones made and the people that go into exile. So here's this exile thing, but he mentions yeah. the psych labs, but, but we don't see them. They're just kind of odd. Yeah, it's a shame, actually. Yeah. But what we know is like that leader of the movement, right? Is Right. That girl's father, right? He's there. Right, and, and he introduces these cyclabs and, and both Larry and I had the idea when we were reading it, when they mentioned the cyclabs, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be awesome when we get to the cyclabs. And we don't get there. And so it seems like that that was an interesting thing that kind of dropped off, but maybe he didn't want to repeat themes that he had done so many other times. So, so. I think there's a lot in this novel that's, again, just, I, I don't, I'm not one of these people that believe Dick was prophetic in any way. Mm-hmm. He was just a sci-fi writer, but, you know, like mass surveillance, that's of course a big theme here. Mm-hmm. But this association with like a, 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 res, a personality resistance to mental illness, right? To call the, Basically, the concentration camps for political prisoners, the psych labs, mm-hmm. and he did that in the in other stories as well. It's it's there in the man who japed. You know, that's we would. There's an, actually an article I read 
a year or two ago, which is talking about basically that the question is like, where's our great like leaders of resistance movements today, like you had in the past. And the thesis was essentially we've been drugging them for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Do you, do and, you think- and we've been like giving kids, you know, all these drugs for ADD or now it's like, was it uh, oppositional defiance disorder? We drug them. So by the time, you know, they're, so there's re- these personalities that tend to resist institutions, you know, are now seen as kind of mental illnesses that need to be treated. Do you think Vulcan, pieces of the paper. do you think that the Vulcan three computer is expressing PKD's feelings on society or, or, or do you think he's, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Is it speaking for the him? Vulcan, you're saying Vulcan three is, is Philip Dick. Yeah. Do you think it's speaking for him or is he trying to portray like a villain? Like, I mean, cause obviously it's the villain of the story, but I, yeah, I don't know how much of it is, is something that he thinks is like a cold rational logical thing or, or, or what? I mean, I, I just, well, I, I think the most interesting thing in the story is actually the Vulcan two computer, which seems to be more human, right? It's like right. that it's, you know, I guess when we think about AI, we say, well, we can start with just a stupid computer, cold, totally rational, right? Response right. to programming. But over time, we're going to eventually we'll pass a turning tests and then we'll get like Asimov robots and then we'll get like the, you know, the, the, the androids with subjectivity, right? Mm-hmm. Or even humanity, right? And Dick does the opposite here, where it's actually Vulcan 2 that seems more grounded to humanity than Vulcan 3. Mm-hmm. Vulcan 3, which is much more cold and, and rational and brutal. Right. Well, so I don't know. I, I would I, I would look to Vulcan too if I was going to try to find right. Dick's Dick's voice. I think I, I think he 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 just has such hostility to automation and like in so many of his stories, like the Great Sea, right? This idea of an unrestrained technology that's totally rational and totally detached from humanity is bad news. I think he, he it's a theme he comes back to so often. Even one of his first stories, The Gun, makes his point. Hmm. Well, that's a story about a civilization that's completely destroyed by war, but they have these automated weapons. And so whenever the explorers come to visit, they get shot down. Well, like later in the book, it's, um, well, actually, it may not have been later. I, I have the three novel version that, of the early books that I know you read those two. Yeah, but, I have that scene. Yeah. And so there, there's, um, there's a line, uh, it's on page 295 of, of that edition of that triple edition where um and it's very telling about the time in which dick was writing this book it's kind of a throwaway line where he talks about uh the world wars happening every 20 years and it's just a random line where he just says that 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 well when you have world wars every 20 years and i was thinking at the time uh you know we've gone a long time since we've had a world war now but at the time of this writing um it it was very conceivable. I mean, everyone assumed that World War III was eventually going to happen with the Russians, right? That we were building up towards this Soviet, you know, communist Cold War going hot. And it, it, it's an interesting aspect to me of Vulcan's Hammer is that that the the Vulcan computers are there to prevent this unending cycle of war is a really interesting concept that he was trying to get about in the book, whether it was done for good or bad. 
Is that the when the is that the teacher who's teaching this his version of history to the students? I think so. It's kind of that interesting scene. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous when like the prime like one of the government heads comes in and starts teaching the class. It's right. Yeah, that was kind of preposterous. Uh, of course, he's there for a reason, but um, right. the teachers teaching this version of history, right? That this was the way the world was, right? Mm -hmm. Wars every twenty years, and then we fixed it, right? So your life, you're alive because of the state, mm -hmm. right? Which of course is is a lie. I think we're often told, right? right? If the state doesn't exist, we we had each other's throats. We're told, or you know, if there wasn't the death penalty, or there wasn't prisons, you know, there'd be gunfights in the street like Wild West, mm -hmm. right? That's this idea that you owe your life to the state that exists now. That's, that's you know, that becomes part of the justification for, for the state. But I, I do think there is that anxiety in the 50s of, of another war. So well, how, that's how, certainly true. That's part of the atomic culture. It's part of that, that Cold War feel. Mm -hmm. It runs through all of Dick's writing at the time. And so it's really funny because it's a book that's written off as being pulpy and ridiculous, but there's a lot of really interesting concepts and themes that are just kind of snuck in there. Um, and uh, well, the big data thing—I think that's the one of the most interesting. Yeah. The, the, the but all the Vulcan three does is takes in all the data, right, and then analyzes it and predicts the future. Right. Right. No, that's not, I don't think that's, I guess he didn't invent that. You have psychohistory, Asimov, right? Yeah. And the foundation, that is the same idea, right? You take in all this data and then you can predict what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. But, uh, this is, it's, it's looking at it through a state. And I think that's an important contribution that Dick makes to that idea. Mm -hmm. That when you have all this data cross, pass through a state, then all these bureaucrats, they're not nice people. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, they have some subjectivity, you know. Yeah. They're pretty much mindless suits, right? Yeah. With their, they have the pen guns, and that's this is the one with the pen guns, right? The right. pen laser guns. Um, yeah. They're mostly kind of mindless uh, drones, but I think that's part of the point here. They're just serving this state. It's kind of like Doctor Futurity in this way that everyone is just playing along with the system that was invented some time before, and they're right. bound by it. Well, right. So. Well, we know, get a jolt to disrupt that. Well, that's a good thing, I think, for Dick. Yeah, and you know, it's funny for because for me, um, as a person who's a writer and like a big film nerd, like I spent a lot of when I was reading Vulcan's Hammer, I saw a movie of this in my head much more clearly than I did a lot of the <laughs> other ones. And I think that you could modernize this story and, um, you know, make a I know when we did the podcast, we talked about how we would do it into a movie and we got very unfaithful about the structure. But, but, uh, and I would I have to have to go back and listen to that because I'm not as in the book as I was when I just read it. But I think, I think the concepts could be redone in a way in the modern world that could really do justice to what PKD was thinking and maybe unbotch the job, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it, not to say that I think that we're smarter than PKD, I just think that we, in hindsight, looking back after all these years, we can we can look mm -hmm. at ways to to make the story work in a way that, you know, he just didn't have at his fingertips. But I think I think Vulcan's Hammer has, Vulcan's Hammer is um, 
I think better than Dr. Futurity. Um, and I, I'm not sure. Well, first of all, and here's, the, here's my hot take. I think, uh, Vulcan's Hammer is a far superior novel to Cosmic Puppets. I think Cosmic Puppets is garbage. Um, to me, Cosmic Puppets is the worst of the PKD books that I've read. Not to say that it doesn't have things that are worthwhile in it, but if you're going to ask me what's the worst PKD novel I've read, I would say Cosmic Puppets, and certainly not Vulcan's Hammer. And for everybody that says Vulcan's Hammer is the worst, I would take Vulcan's Hammer seven days a week over Cosmic Puppets. I don't know, that's well, yeah, answer. I would take it any day over Divine Invasion. For me, that's his worst novel. Oh, okay, so there's our... Unless you like reading... Uh, 200 pages of bad theology. Yeah, and exactly. Well, people talking about, I mean, Valis is, is, is kind of bad, but it's better than, than Divine Invasion. So, right. since that's so clearly the worst novel, I, I kind of, I, I, I've never been one who thought Vulcan's Hammer was, was the worst. No, no. I, so we agree on that. So that, yeah. that could be, um, that could be the hot take that we, uh, highlight right. for, to get people to listen to the episode. Uh, Lampy and Agronov do not believe Vulcan's Hammer is the worst. <laughs> uh, but, uh, all I right. I love Cosmic Puppets though. They, there's. I know you like Cosmic Puppets more than we did, but we all three on Dickheads, that was the one that we universally, and that's the episode that we have the most listens to. I, I don't oh. understand. But, um, cause we did not like it. And, you know, just the fact that they drive away into giant boobs at the end just makes it all the much more worse for me. I, I just can't take Cosmic Puppets, but I know I, I, that there is value to it. I'm not going to say it's terrible, you know. Well, it's, it's cringy at times. It's very cringy. But uh, anything, uh, anything else on Vulcan's Hammer? I'm trying to. Uh, I don't know. There's not much to say. I, I think um, for those who who are, I would recommend people who don't want to read this novel, but they're they're they want to know Dick's ideas about big data, which I think is maybe the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is to read Holy Quarrel, a short story Dick wrote later in the 60s, which has the same idea of a, of a AI processing all the data from the, basically the, this whole world and then predicting the future. Um, but I would, do want to add one more thing though, and that's sure. this, the change in Vulcan Hammer comes from within. It comes from Vulcan 2, it comes from Barris and Dill, right? Or Dill's Dill. Mm-hmm. I, forget, yeah. Yeah, I think it's still. Um, it comes from them, right? But you have a movement culture, right? And I think this is one of the now early novels that asks this question that Dick's going to ask throughout his career is where does change come? And I think it's really got three answers at various times. One is, I mean, he's not always writing about dystopias that need to be changed. Mm-hmm. But I think here's the big difference. One of the big difference between Dick and someone like the Orwellian type of dystopias. Orwell's dystopias are not meant to be overthrown or challenged. They're the boot stepping on human face forever. Dick doesn't accept that, right? So his dystopias are always unstable. Yeah. But does change come from within, as in the man who japed, right? Mm-hmm. Or solar lottery? Uh, does it come from movement cultures like? You have a movement culture, the healers, they're called, which is an interesting name. You got unity and healers, mm. which is kind of a, they both have the same kind of concept, right? Of, of repairing or bringing together. But, uh, there's a novel, Friends from Frolox 8, which is all about like a movement culture resisting uh, a state. 
Um, and then there's the kind of the valis argument that the help comes from from outside, from some kind of alien force. And of course, he's not playing with that here, unless you say Vulcan Two is kind of a Deus Ex Machina mm. force. But it's really the, do, does change come through the movement culture or from within? And I think in this novel, Dick is still saying these institutions have to be broken down from within. There's kind of an anxiety about popular movements, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And he doesn't, like the healers aren't presented in a positive way. And I think that's what could be interesting in an, adapt in an adaptation mm -hmm. is the, I guess you would see, so you see a, a movie about big data, uh, a tyrannical state run by an AI, and then a movement overthrows it. That's been done. That kind of thing's been done. But the really twist is that you, the, the movement culture is kind of toxic as well. And so it really comes from within the system itself. That, that could be, I think, be an interesting contribution to this trope of dystopia resistance, which we've seen so often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Vulcan's Hammer is, I, I mean, I like how intensely political it is. And, and mm -hmm. you know, um, we all saw, I mean, all three of us saw a certain amount of value in Vulcan's Hammer that, we just kind of laughed off the whole um, worst, worst PKD novel thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm trying to be sensitive of your time because it's, uh, for those oh, uh, I'm fine. Listening, listening at home, um, Evan is, lives in China and it's late as hell there and it's super early for us, so we're really fresh. And, um, <laughs> but uh, we still have uh, Man in the High Castle to, to do. So, um, and then, uh, do we have one, we have one of game players and game, game players. players. We have two left. So that's fine. We can take our time. Okay. So, uh, because this is a big one. Yeah, the, it is the man in the high castle. And, um, definitely, um, I suggest everyone listens to all your podcasts for, because they're all good and they all have add value to the discussion of PKD. But, uh, your, your man in the high castles were super great and really important for, um, for uh me getting into the idea of discussing it um this when i read it for the podcast was the third time that i'd read man in the high castle so and for me it was a really interesting experience because um the last time was on audiobook the first time i think i was too young to get it and then but i this was the first time where i had a highlighter out and i was like like you know highlighting sections and I think I got so much more out of, out of Man in the High Castle. But, um, speaking of, of just the things that were, it's really interesting when we're talking about the writing of it is PKD contradicts himself, as he often does, um, all the time talking about where Man in the High Castle came from. And they're explainable, but it's like on one hand, he talks about how he researched this book for years. But then he says that he was just sitting in the jewelry shop making jewelry with and and then the whole book came to him and he had then he'll say i had no plan no notes nothing and i just started writing well i don't know if he spent years researching a book with a different idea and then this idea came to him or what i mean it's possible but we had lots of contradictory uh thoughts on on like how it came together where do you think this fits in the ideas um you know that he's trying to go with at this point like how are we seeing a shift in the concepts that dick is putting forward i guess is what i'm saying that's that's such a big question i i, I think 
as with time on a join, it's it's kind of continuing this idea of full of of the false fronts and and what's really real. Um, of course, everyone who approaches Dick sort of knows that that's the major theme of his. This is such a meta take on it. I think that's mm-hmm. that's how I kind of read it. Where it's it's not like it's not about the gods. It's not about politics. It's not really about subjectivity either. It's just the theme of the novel is is reality, right? And it's it's just kind of a meta-analysis of that. That's, the, I guess, the best way I can say it. Um, but like Time Out of Joint, it does introduce that kind of ambiguous ending where you're supposed to left, where you don't really know where you're supposed to be standing at the end. And I think that's a, a shift from some of his earlier works. In, For instance, in Vulcan's Hammer or Man Who Japed, you have an ending that's unfinished, perhaps, Right, like you have a system that's been shooken, and you don't know what's going to come out of that. But it doesn't really matter because that's not the point of the novel, right? Everything else is sort of explained. That's not the case here. It's just he's just giving you this, um, this reality, and then kind of throwing a twist into it, and letting you kind of work it out for yourself. Well, and, and I always which I, which I kind of like, but mm-hmm. it's. At the same time, I think it's saying so many important things about the world that that we live in. I think it's like like the time on a joint. I think it's dealing with a lot of the same themes, actually, mm-hmm. whether it's family or especially consumerism or nature of political power. Yeah, time on a joint's all explained though. And what I think, yeah. what I appreciate about Man in the High Castle is that there's so much of it that is not explained, and um, you know, he, I usually don't like that. I usually don't like when it's not explained. Well, I, I like that. I like to have it explained, but I like this novel because yeah, it's just—it's—it's well, it's more like a work of philosophy or something. Well, yeah, and the, I personally like that. It's the uh, Tagomi doesn't know why or how he's moving between realities. Yeah, and Dick has said specifically, like, we don't—I don't explain it because I don't know how. I don't mm-hmm. know why or how it's happening. And, uh, Larry and I have recently been talking about that scene a lot because, uh, I'm currently writing a novel where I constantly use that as a defense for not explaining some of the aspects in my novel where I'm like, hey now, Philip K. Dick never explained why Tagomi was going back and forth between realities. So I'm okay. Um, although I have been in my defense been trying to explain some of it, um, more recently, but, he did say a lot about how, and I, I know I've already mentioned this, that this was the first time where he wasn't writing for an editor. He wasn't trying to, even with Time Out of Joint, he expected Ace to buy it. He expected Don Wolheim to buy it originally. And this time he just knew, I don't even want to send this to Don Wolheim. This is the first time in his career, by the way, that he had no interest in sending it to Don Wolheim. He had told... um he had basically told his agency that he didn't think Don Wilhelm would take it. And so it's really interesting that um, I think he felt a little bit of freedom writing this that he didn't have before. Because when he was writing it, according to his comments, is that he didn't think about the market at all with this one. Do you think that that's um, evident when you're reading it as a PKD scholar? Ah. Uh. Well, 
Well, it's not even really sci-fi. I don't know. So it's, I don't Yeah, he obviously couldn't have marketed it to the, to like the ace. Uh, like he had those other novels. Well, I would disagree, so, I would disagree with you that there are Nazis on Mars. So. There, there is, but. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's alternate history. It's alternate. True. It's an alternate history. Which was and, not as much of a thing at the time. I do want to talk about the, 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 the Nazis on Mars aspect of it. Sure. Uh, at some point. Yeah. We'll come back to that. But, yeah. but I, I think this idea that he, I don't think he saw it as mainstream, but uh, let me tell you, uh, the people in the sci-fi community before it won the Hugo, they didn't think it was sci-fi either. They were on your side because they said some pretty brutal shit. Um, and, uh, PKD was on the outs with many of the different editors that he had worked with in the past. The Tony Bouchers, shout out to Tony. Um, and, uh, the Tony Bouchers, the Don Wolheims, they said, uh, a lot of, like, I'm, let's see if I can find the quotes, like, oh yeah, Tony Boucher called it a failure. I heard him review it on the radio. He said it was not a science fiction novel. It was actually mainstream. Once you got past the ultimate world premise, later he came up to me and said that he felt like it was a breakthrough novel. Don Wolheim said it is sick, dated, and not science fiction. Call it sick and dated. Yeah. Um, no, there, there's a, the facade of it, but you know, what, one thing I want to say about this novel is mm -hmm. when we think about his 60s novels, there's this obsession about family much more than you had in the 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, there's bits of it, especially in the stories, but there's this obsession with like that, the, uh, the divorced man dealing with his ex-wife who's, you know, who has other men. That's so well developed in this novel. And I think this might be the first time he really has that very, like Frank is kind of the closest maybe to Dick's POV here. Right, the you know, especially with his anxiety over the family and and meaning, right? He's right. He's of course he's he's had all this failure getting his mainstream novels published, right? Mm -hmm. So this character trying to create like authentic jewelry, right, handcrafted, right, and he can't get it, he can't sell it, right? He can only sell it on consignment. That's that's Dick's anxieties right there on the page, and that's such a big part of his '60s works that it really comes off. Um, here quite strongly. That's the mainstream stuff though, right? Mm -hmm. That that's the bulk of the novel is about, you know, Frank and his partner, uh who's who's his name? Frank's partner? Um Yeah, the one they're making the jewelry with. Um uh oh gosh. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, whatever, but you know, or Childen, this, Childen. this uh, antique, no, Childen's the antique Childen. dealer. Antique guy? The antique dealer who's trying to, you know, impress all his, right. his, his, his customers. Uh, Frank's wife going off on this quest with, mm -hmm. with a new boyfriend, uh, who turns out to be no good for her. I mean, this is, this is all the mainstream stuff. Yeah. And this is what his mainstream novels read like, actually. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's really interesting is because then he goes on to win the Hugo for this. After, yeah, I does. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised. I don't know how, I wonder if he danced in the end zone a little bit. I wonder if like there were any letters to Wolheim or anything that were like, kind of like, hey, fuck you, dude. 
I just won the Hugo. Uh, because they were really brutal. The reviews were really brutal on Man in the High Castle, like calling it, I mean, sick and dated and like all these things, like he took a lot of, t- took a lot of gruff for it, but he believed in this book and, mm-hmm. and, and he, um, stood by it and, uh, you know, I did, there's quotes about Don Wilhelm saying it was the wrong choice for the Hugos. And, uh, and then Dick said, now most readers know how little science fiction writers are paid. I was earning about 6000 a year. And the year following the Hugo, I earned 12000 And close to that in subsequent years, I wrote at a fantastic speed. I produced 12 novels a year, uh, 12 novels in two years, and this was to capitalize off the Hugo success. So it's like, yeah, yeah I mean, he, he knew, and then it was funny because then Wolheim gets Game Players the Titan and calls it the most important novel of the year. And it's like, dude, yeah. Um, so Ed McCarthy is the name of his partner? Yeah, okay. Ed McCarthy. Oh, Ed, yeah. Yeah. Um, who's played by DJ Qualls on the TV show, which was great casting, by the way, but you, you don't care about the TV show. So, uh, um, Never watched it. Don't have time. I get these recommendations all the, you know, we gotta watch this on Netflix. I do have Netflix here. Yeah. Now it comes in and out. I can't always watch it, but. Well, well, every other day I get a new recommendation for a TV series to watch. So. Well, uh, we'll get back to Man in the High Castle and the TV show in a bit, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, it's just really interesting how, um, he took so much shit. Uh, on this book coming out, but he definitely believed in it, which was good. And, oh, and I found the Japanese translator, um, quote that we talked about before we came on the air. Um, you might be interested in this. The exact quote yeah. was, translator said, your book wasn't any good to start with. That's how the quote starts. <laughs> and then he said, <laughs> secondly, you confused Chinese and Japanese culture. The Chinese are inferior people and the I Ching Chinese, not Japanese. No Japanese would ever use such some Confucian classic. Only foreigners use those. Yeah, that sticks years of research into... Yeah, paid off. I, mean, <laughs> I, th- I believe he researched the, the Nazis for years. I think he had a deep interest in the Nazis. And writing about the Nazis, yeah. I believe writing so about them. And yeah, he did like, know... Who else would use Reinhard Heinrich, Heydrich as a major character? Everyone else would use like Himmler or some more recognize a plural character. I mean, I know they have parables here, but the focus he puts on Reinhard Heinrich is, mm. I think, is kind of striking. Maybe at the time it was more well-known, but I doubt it. I well, mean, he died in, I think, 42 by the Czech resistance. Right. In, in our timeline. Right. And, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you and, got a chance to listen to our interview with uh, uh, Gavriel Rosenfeld, the historian who um, does the counterfactual history blog. But, um, yeah, that's one of the things Gob was really, um, impressed by when he read Man in the High Castle the first time was his research into the Nazis and how well he knew the Nazis. And, uh, Gob and his father are both experts at anti-Semitism. Like, and they, the fact that, that these experts in anti-Semitism really appreciate Man in the High Castle, I think says something to the research that he did. Yeah. I, I think that's a, uh, it's really a strong aspect of the novel is like, I think he gets the, I think he does get the Japanese wrong, sorry, wrong essentially. Except I, 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 I buy the, the, their, their obsession with American antiquities. I, for some reason, I, I, I yeah. can see that. 
I think that uh, the thing is the occupiers being interested in these American antiques. Yeah, he yeah. idealized. And the class aspect of it is just really fascinating. So yeah, and that's one aspect of Man in the High Castle that is kind of you know that we talked about is is kind of messed up is is Dick knew the Nazis were evil, but he kind of idealized the Japanese as the lesser of two evils, and mm-hmm. um, really kind of tried to make like you know the West Coast scene. Hey, it's not so bad, you know the Japanese we got, you know. But for anyone who's a study who studied history and knows how the Japanese took over. China and Nanking and all that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think one aspect that I don't like about Man in the High Castle, or I think is a weakness of Man in the High Castle and the weakness of the TV show too, is is that the Japanese are portrayed as is is not so terrible. And I think mm-hmm. that if they had taken over the West Coast of the United States, it would have been a freaking bloodbath. Um, and yeah. and and. and that was never even the Jap- Jap- Japan's war goals, right? Yeah. It was, it was Greater East Asian Cold Prosperity Sphere. Um, of course, this is alternate history. So whatever. Right, right, right. Um, but you guys notice that the, this is, the history in The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is not our history. It's oh, absolutely. It's, it's an entirely different history. Yeah, and so it's that's... Not just there are. The, right. the alternative, there is, so our history is, isn't even here. Unless it's a third reality underneath it all. Which I guess is, which we might want to think. Uh, uh, but the Nazis here, um, the Nazis on the moon, I mean, <laughs> Dick had written so much about the frontier up to this point. Presenting either the front, the Mars is the base for the psych labs or the crazy, you send the crazy people to, or it's actually this draw, human drive for a frontier as in, I think, time out of joint. Uh, World Jones May has that very strong. I think that's a strong theme. But Solar Lottery, which that's a whole subplot about trying to find the tenth planet, mm-hmm. all that stuff. This and then the stories do it all over. You know, the, the need for a frontier. And here the Nazis achieve it, but what they do with it is is it's totally banal. It's it's useless. There's no future here. I I, I really strongly think Dick's the heart of his criticism of, of the Nazis is that there is no future. It's just endless violence. Mm-hmm. And and conquest. It's not about remaking humanity, which we see with uh, genocide in Africa. And, and and yeah, they just continue what they're doing in Europe to Africa, and then what you know, I forgot the details of what they were doing on the on Mars, but or on the Moon. But it's it's just extending what they've already created on Earth. It's not a rebirth. Well, I think the Blakemen from from yeah. uh, Martian Time Slip were in trouble when the Nazis got there. But yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so one of the, one of the aspects that I thought was really interesting early in it was, uh, the talk about that I think gets overlooked is the, is the mention of Capitulation Day. Um, mm-hmm. and I actually do think that the TV show actually deals with capitulation and the capitulation guilt, um, really well, uh, especially late in season one. Um, but, uh, it, it, I, I just think, um, it's funny because I think it's kind of a throwaway line, but I think so much is said with so little and in, in, with the mention, just calling it capitulation day, you know, uh, says so much about the, the guilt that, that the people would be feeling. How do you think that PKD dealt with that in the novel? Like, was it as, well, I, as impactful I to you? It deals with this overall, how characters feel 
put upon. I, I think Frank is great because he's put upon by several layers, right? He's, his country's occupied. He, you know, he has a bad job, right? He loses his bad job, right? He's, mm. He fails at his own business that he tries. He fails with his wife. So capitulation day for someone like Frank has many layers, right? He's capitulated so many times in his life. And just the short time we meet him in this novel is, is just failure after failure. And it's mm. right. Um, there's really, is there any really success achievement for Frank? Is there any redeeming moment for him? I'm trying to remember. Not really in the book. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a, so it's not just the political narrative. It's, yeah. It runs all the way down with them. All this humiliation after humiliation. Right? Yeah. And the children feels the same way. Children who, you know, has to put up with these hoity-toity Japanese, bougie, young, young rich people, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously wealthy off of plundering America, it seems, right? Mm-hmm. We can presume. And they come in in their suits and, you know, they want their fancy counterfeits and or their, their authentic antiques. And just the, the various layers of what it's like to be a defeated people. In, in, in the context of a victory culture that America still was mm-hmm. before the Vietnam War. Right. Are you familiar with the concept of victory culture? Uh, no, not, I hadn't heard that term well, before. Yeah. There's a, it's a, there's a history book that's written. Uh, it's basically, it's called like the end of victory culture. And it's basically, basically it's arguing that the whole frontier story, the American story of, of winning every war, right? From the revolution war of 1812 to we'll set aside the civil war for a minute, but every war America wins, this comes to an end in, in Vietnam. Right. right. But when Dick's writing this, it's still victory culture, right? So the idea of an, of an American people defeated, I think it's kind of a radical vision, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the exception to this is the South. If you read Southern literature, they're constantly dealing with the fact that they were defeated. So they're the exception to the victory culture. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how conscious Dick is of that. He's responding to a, a literature in the pulps and, you know, in just popular culture and on the TV of, of the conquest of the West. And, you know, the kind of the greatness of American empire. See, this is really cool because this is something that neither our podcast or your podcast and all the man in the high castle that we did, we did, we hadn't talked about this yet. And I think that I think this is yeah. really interesting because I think the fact that it was written in a victory culture is, is really crucial to a lot of what it's doing because it makes, it makes the real, the, the alternate reality of man, in the high castle more powerful at the time that it was released than even today, you know, because we can, we can see what it looks like for America to, because to have lost a war, because that just hadn't happened. Yeah. And, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, and that, 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 that's, that's really a bit interesting aspect. Now is getting back to like his writing ability and how it's jumped ahead. You already mentioned the fact that the, the history in the grasshopper eyes lies heavy is, is a third reality. Um, one of the ways that Dick really subtly makes this point is the scene where, uh, Childen explains, like, the history significance of, um, can't remember what it was. It was the bullet or is the gun that, that shot. Yeah, the gun, right? Yeah, it was the gun that was used in an assassination. And he basically says, like, just because I say this, it has historical meaning. It suddenly takes on more meaning, 
was it actually there? Or was it just saying it? Was it fake? Was it real? And that scene illustrates the concept of the fact that what Dick's kind of trying to make the point of is, is I think he was trying to make a point that you don't even know if the reality or the history that you're being taught is real either. Because yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're being taught this history, and it may not be real, and and we can see from his version of his ideals of what he thinks Japanese society is that his depiction of history might not have been as well informed on that aspect. You know, yeah. I think Frank's boss is the same thing, right? Like, is he talking to a woman? I think. Yeah. Saying and they're like, "How do you yeah. know this is fake?" He's like, "Well, I have the paper trail." Yeah, and he. I have he, the receipts. Right. But how does that prove authenticity? Right. Right, and they're kind of like, "Oh, okay, yeah." And 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 I think that this is a really prime example of this is one of the most excellent uh, forms of narrative, um, like it's just a really subtle narrative way that he expresses the concept behind the novel. In a way, I think this moment is a real, it's kind of like Dick flexing his muscles in a way that we hadn't seen before. And I think that that's a crucial scene in his development as a writer. Just speaking as a person who looks at this from a writing perspective. Um, as far as philosophically, I think it also is a crucial point in, 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 in Dick's bibliography. But, I just wanted to point that out to the people listening as that's something that we hammered home on our podcast. But I think, um, I, I think that's a really big turning point. I don't know how you, if you feel similar. No, I, I agree. It's, uh, yeah, with everything you said. So um, I do think there, there's a, there's a feeling in kind of, kind of a critique of, of kind of mass consumer culture here too. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of the overall fakeness of sort of everything around us. Right at the time, and I, I, you know, I'm not of the 1950s, so I kind of mm-hmm. just go off impressions I might have. But the idea you go into a department store, right, and there's, mm-hmm. you know, miles and miles of the same coats and suits. Like I, maybe everyone wearing the same sort of suits, right, and yeah. smoking the same c- c- cigarettes, same style cigarettes, and the same hats. And um, you know, what does authenticity mean in that? That's why it's so important that this jewelry is kind of malformed and weird and, and there's something unique about it that totally baffles everyone who sees it, right? Mm-hmm. They can't even explain what's special about it. They just know it's special because it's not like, it's not mass produced. It's not the same as everything else, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, well, we're told very early in the novel, actually, that these antiques are all fakes, essentially. That's Frink's, what Frink's job it was before he got can't, before he went off on his own, right? Right. He's making the fake guns. That mm-hmm. Well, and, and, uh, you know. Mass produced. Well, and there's, there's lots of little things in this novel, too, that I wanted to touch on. Um, uh, the, the reaction to the grasshopper lies heavy in this world is really interesting. The fact that people are so afraid of it, um, kind of says something about the power of, of speculative fiction or sci-fi yeah. because, um, you know, I think Dex is trying to put this idea that we, we can be revolutionary, we can be dangerous. I don't know if you yeah. saw that, but I, I, I really like that aspect of it because I think that's huge. Um, some little things, um, I, the Nazis killed all the best comedians 
<laughs> in this world, <laughs> which is a really interesting thing because I think that's just Dick, like a little line that Dick's, you know, giving props to the Jewish comedians. Um, and that, who was that? Bob Hope was living in Canada, right? In, in this yeah. book. And, um, so then it was interesting to me because then I started thinking a lot about like, well, what the hell is Canada doing during all this time? But, um, he obviously. Well, they were in the war, so they would have been occupied too, you would have thought. But, you would have thought, um, yeah. Um, which is kind of that buffer zone even in America, right? That's where Frank thinks of going there or something, or is that, that's where Julianne is going, maybe? Yeah, the free states like in, the in there. Kind of, yeah, the, which is the opposite of Red Dawn. Because for whatever, I've always thought that was the most hilarious thing that in Red Dawn that, that Russia invades the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> it's like, why would you do that? But I guess, you know, hey, 80s Cold War. I mean, uh, Invasion USA, they invade Miami. Um, but, uh, you know, hey, it was the 80s. Um, but, uh. But there's a critique of the Nazis, uh, in addition, well, do we need more, but probably not, but. Yeah. That even in the, the, the one thing, the one project of genocide is not even successful. Yeah. Right? Well, it's, it's hinted at. Yeah. Not fully, right? Yeah. And so one thing that was interesting, um, there was a line and I didn't, I, just historically, it just made me go, huh? Was that he had this idea that the British had concentration camps in China. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's exactly. Um, it's on page 169 of the Mariner edition. Um, okay. I don't know. We, I don't have any of my editions yeah. here. Yeah. I don't know, but it was just like, there was like a random line about how like in the lead up or during the, the conflict or during the war, there was a, uh, there, that the British had, um, well here, Larry's, Larry's getting it. Um, but, uh, we'll come back to that in a minute, but, um, Operation Dandelion is another thing, like, that's really crucial to the book. Um, and I think that there's some really, uh, fascinating things about the difference between the, the, the Nazis who are carrying on the mission, who, who want to take it further. And what do you think about Operation Dandelion, like, as a historian? Do you think, um, do you think it makes sense that, that this could have happened in this alternate reality? Well, maybe if, well, I don't, I don't think, you know, you know, this is such a what if. I mean, this, I mean, after 41, 42, Germans winning the war is not even on the table, right? Right. Um, but, yeah, assume this reality. I could see this. I mean, it, it but maybe not in the timeline it gives us. Right. It's, okay, so this happened. Nazi war plans for like Eastern Europe for Lebensraum, right? Resettling Eastern Europe with German people, Germanic people. That's, that's kind of the short term plan, right? I guess I don't, I don't know how far ahead they were thinking, but, um, yeah, it seems a luxury of victory to right. attack the Japanese, Japanese islands. <laughs> right. Well, um, so this, this, Happened in the grass. This thing about the British concentration camps happened in in the grasshopper lies heavy. Oh yeah, and it's uh, Joe's talking about. He's talking. Joe's reading, talking to Juliana about the um, grasshopper lies heavy, and he says, "Human nature, the nature of states, suspicion, fear, greed." Churchill thinks the U.S. is undermining British rule in South Asia. 
by appealing to the large Chinese populations who are naturally pro-USA due to Shanghai Shek. Um, the British start setting up, he grinned at her briefly, what are called detention preserves, concentration camps in other words, for thousands of maybe disloyal Chinese. They are accused of sabotage and propaganda. Churchill is so, and then Juliana cuts him off. But that's that's the line. So, um, which is kind of a weird thing. I, I I just that one really struck me as like a an interesting like hot take on on this alternate history. Um, whether you know, and that was Joe was using it as to say like, oh, see, they're just as bad as us, kind of thing. But. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I think there were other hints of that in, in some of the dandelion lines, but I'm not going to remember what they are. Yeah. All right, so... Um, Something about, like, Roosevelt's policies on something. Yeah. Or no, Roosevelt's assassinated. Right, that's what sets it off. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I mean, it's Man in the High Castle. It's like, uh, I think... You know, it is really just such an important work, uh, beyond the fact that he won the Hugo. I just think that this is the first unadulterated PKD novel that we got that wasn't, that didn't have like really heavy editorial, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't fucked with by the editor. Yeah. Interference yeah. is the word I'm looking for. It wasn't fucked with by Don Wollon. And I think that that, that really makes it, I think we can look at all the different aspects of how it fits his themes and fits these things, but I think, I think it's the fact that it's the first time that we really saw him, you know, let loose and do exactly the novel he wanted to do. Maybe time out of joint a little bit. Eye in the Sky, he definitely was trying, but Tom Wilhelm really messed with that book too. And I, I just really think, um, this one is, and that's one of the reasons why it's important. What do you think is the most important things to get out of Man in the High Castle? <laughs> yeah, Sorry. so much to say. Uh, I think uh, this authenticity, I guess, the the, the difficulty of, of authenticity, yeah, um, especially in a mass consumer society where... I mean, we could even start about like fake news, right? Or, or, or even historical narratives. Nothing can really be authenticated. I think that's the heart of, of the idea and everything kind of springs from that. Whether you're talking about the gun or the history, you know, or whether Frank's a Jew or not. I mean, there's, or there's the, the other character, the spy, right? Mm-hmm. Was Joe. it the Jewish, Joe. Swedish spy or something, right? Yeah. You know, it, everything is, is up for grabs in this novel. And he's, so it's like, I think it's just a meta analysis of authenticity and reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the kind of as foreshadowing something that's going to come up so much in the sixties is this put upon husband or ex-husband. Um, the, the, the relationship between Frank and Juliana and Joe is something that's going to, he's going to tell that story a dozen times in his career yeah. in various ways. So that kind of foreshadowing that, um, but that's the heart of it. I think the new religious movement, even though the I Ching stuff is all wrong, I think um, Dick has an interest in religious movements and religious cultures, and the idea of a culture or religion based on the I Ching evolving and developing in the United States um, is 
something that's on Dick's mind, I think, in California, where these religions sort of pop up all the time. They're going to, again, say more about this in the 70s and 80s in some of his works. So I think there's a lot of uh, great threads here, but I thought, you're right. It's just at the heart of it about authenticity and reality. It's there, and it, everything fits into that. And that's what makes it such a strong novel. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny because I, I'm in my – if I talk about the TV show for a second, and I know yeah. you haven't watched it, the thing about the TV show is that I felt like – one of the things that's important to know about the TV show is that they changed showrunners after the first year. And the first year, the showrunner, Frank, Frank Spotnitz, seemed to take seriously researching PKD. He read his biography. He read all of his notes for his follow-up that he never got to write. And he was very serious, and he understood the kind of what is reality thing about it. But he had a TV show to do. And he mm -hmm. had to get drama going over 10 hours, so he definitely developed some storylines that were kind of outside of this. So the problem is, is that Man in the High Castle devolves into what everyone thinks it's supposed to be, which, you know, people think Man in the High Castle is supposed to be, ooh, scary, Nazis took over and, and the Nazis won. But really, it's not about that. It's about this inautistic, uh, it's about history. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not even trying to say that word now because I messed it up, but it's about how history is fake and all the, and reality is pliable and all those things. That's what man in the high castle is about. It's not about ooh, scary Nazis. He could have chosen another conflict and, and told it that's just the one that, you know, worked. And so for that reason, I think the TV show is mostly getting it wrong because so much is focused on ooh, scary Nazis. However, I will, in, in defense of the TV show, I will say that there is a storyline with um, a character who's not really in the novel, the John Smith, the Gruppenheimer John Smith, which is fantastic. This one element of it that um, kind of, and I believe that this character was inspired by some of Dick's notes for his follow-up that he never got to write, the owl in the daylight. But anyways, like, we have this, there is some storylines that really do make the show, I think, worth it. And I do think that there's enough of the book there that it does make it interesting to watch as fans of the book. So, yeah, I know a lot of people are telling you to watch different TV shows. But I would say Man in the High Castle is, is definitely worth seeing. The only big, big, big problem is that they try to make The Grasshopper Lies Heavy not just a book. But also these random films that show up, and that makes no sense. <laughs> totally disagree. But, <laughs> anyways, we argue. David's wrong. <laughs> we argue about this. It, it's, but it's, I have a question. We're just a thought about yeah how things get adapted, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know a TV series gets adapted and it does well, and you know, of course they want to go for three, four, five years. You know, like, you know, do the Game of Thrones thing. It's get a nice long run and become make mm -hmm. all the money. Right. But I don't know if you saw the Haunting of Hill House where they, they take a novel and they adapt it for one season. And I guess, uh, what was it American Horror Story has been sort of doing that with the anthology style. Right. Detectives doing this to actually the proper at length way to adapt a novel is probably something like a six, seven, eight, ten episode series. Right. But when we have it open ended, then you, you have to fill that time up. Right. But I've, I've been seeing recently there's been you know, more of these anthology style approaches 
which might be a better platform for, you know, adapting novels like this. Well, yeah, yeah. I know four seasons on Man in the High Castle. I don't know what you would do with it without just kind of making up stuff that aren't in the, that aren't coming from the text, you know, or how many times can you beat a dead horse? Yeah, I, I, I'm only halfway through season two and I think they're going a little bit more sci-fi. Okay. Towards where they're getting into it. And definitely it's leading into, I think it's more of like, uh, you know, and it's, you know, you said, uh, Hackett, Dick, she's, she's trying to be true to her father's vision, but I think a lot of what she's saying is, you know, she's falling back on this whole idea of resistance and resistance mm-hmm. to fascism, and that is becoming really the theme more so than the what is reality of the further seasons. And it's unfortunate because they do certain things out of the novel just awesome and perfect. The Tagomi scene, um, in the, in the TV show is worth seeing. As a okay. fan of the novel, it's worth seeing that scene for, because it's funny, it's 10 episodes in, right? <laughs> um, and at one point I thought to myself, well, you know, it's too bad we didn't get that scene. And then when I was watching the 10th episode, I was like, whoa, wait, now, and they did make it make sense. Um, and you get a little bit more of the interplay of, of Hitler and, and the, and the, and the Nazis, whereas just kind of suggested in the novel. So I think there's things to, to, to watch there. And I do think that, I think that the spirit of Man in the High Castle, for the most part, it's hit or miss. But I think that if it gets people to read the novel, I'm all for it. And I've definitely seen online a lot of people that have started reading Phil K. Dick because of, of the TV show. So, and that, all right. It's not a bad thing. So, last, Game not, players of Titan. The game players of Titan. And here's the thing. Um, I think we definitely both agree that this book kind of feels more fitting with the, his fifties output. Maybe, but I think in, in some ways, but I, I see, I think it, it fits with some of like the sixties, like that, the wild, the, the, the 12 novels in two years period too. Sure. But it's somewhere in between of but, those two. Definitely Vulcan's Hammer is the end of the 50s era, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's where we like, cut what off. What does this have? This has so many mo- like tropes that Dick's going to come back to, like the shrink, the relationship between the patient and the doctor. And there's a few 50s stories with that. But, oh, he, he was obsessed with that in the 60s. Well, um, which is interesting because at the time, uh, John W. Campbell, who's like one of the biggest names in science fiction, yeah. right? Is full bore, um, into Dianetics, right? Yeah, into Dianetics. He's the one who edited Dianetics for L. Ron Hubbard. And Astound- Astounding Magazine was just like filled with Dianetics propaganda because mm-hmm. he was like way into it. So when I was reading Game Players of Titan, I just finished reading Astounding, the biography of John W. Oh, yeah, Hubbard. we did that in Sci Fi Audio. Yeah. That come up in a few weeks. That's a great book. Yeah, and so my take on reading Game Players of Titan was really influenced by having just read Astounding. Mm-hmm. And, and it led me to wonder if some of the psychiatry stuff and some of the therapy stuff in there wasn't influenced by, like, this massive thing that was happening in the sci-fi community at the time. Yeah, there's a scene, I know, it's, it's getting a little late, I'm sorry, but yeah. it's one of these later novels where there's a scene where walks into a room 
No, it's no, it's actually from this period. He wrote it. It's it's uh, Confessions of a Crap Artist, mm-hmm. where there's a scene where did you read that one? I have not read it yet. No. Yeah, where he goes into a, a room with these other kind of I don't want to say cultists, but they're they're kind of UFO cultists essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes to the meeting, and they're they're doing auditing. They're auditing each other. Mm-hmm. And until I read the, I didn't think of that until I read the Astounding book. And then I, I came back and read Confessions of Trapars. I'm like, wow, this is, he's making fun of Dianetics here. Right, right. Well, and, you know, it's interesting in the publishing history of Game Players of Titan because he wrote several books before, like in this interim, before yeah. Game Players of Titan was the one that, that came out. And most notably, Don Wilhelm rejected Martian Time Slip. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Mar- and he rejected Martian Time Slip because he couldn't, handle his set his sci-fi brain couldn't accept that we would have colonies on mars uh in the 90s and so point to don wilheim <laughs> uh mm-hmm. because i think in this case don wilheim was right i don't know if i would have rejected the book outright but um pkd pulled time slip because he did not want to set it 100 years in the future he wanted it like he wanted it in the nineties. So that was important to him. But he also wrote Dr. Blood Money in this time. And then, and then Game Players of Titan. Um, and look, there's a lot to like in Game Players of Titan. I'm not, yeah, yeah. And I, I but it's definitely more pulpy than, mm-hmm. you know, you got your space slugs and you got, you know, mental trans telepathy transporting between. You know, oh yeah, the the, the the posthumans here are like full display. It's it's a lot of fun, I think, what he does with them. Like, and yeah. that's also another thing you see again and again in the '60s are these are these posthumans having fun with their their powers. Yeah, which is cool to watch. So so there's lots of lots of little interesting fun things with the the G Wiz sci fi stuff. Um, <laughs> there's the the Vugs. Well, first of all, like. The fact that, okay, let's talk about the game for a second, which is basically, we, like, you know, I immediately thought of Monopoly. Larry says it's more like Game of Life. But, I mean. It's never fully explained, I don't think. And it's contradictory at times. Right. And, and so, but. I think I talk about this in the podcast where I try to work out what I think the game is. Right. And so they're playing this game of bluff and, and, and it's all about, property and management and and because there's so few people left that this is how land is acquired or given or taken but it's all overseen by the bugs so mm-hmm. it's kind of a colonial thing too yeah. there's a lot of really interesting concepts yeah. and, in and also society. you have no people left there's so few people left because of i guess the war the occupation and low birth rates so this becomes a way of of Basically spread another gene pool. Right. So every time you win a game, you get new property and you also almost like a feudal marriage almost. You get a new wife, right? So these people have been married 30, 40, hundreds of times, you know, maybe a hundred times in their life. And it's all about trying to get pregnant. Right. Really. And you just are trying to max up, mix up as many people as possible. It, it's a, it's kind of a solution to the, to the problem. But, you know, I, you know, Dick here is, He's the clearest, his, his most well-developed kind of description of kind of serial monogamy. Right. I, I think really about his, bi- you know, Dick's biography, you know, he, 
married five times. You know, he's a committed monogamist, but he goes through, you know, he's a serial monogamist, right? A committed right. serial monogamist. And, you know, that's part of, I think, the liquid world we live in and that he was part part of this change, right? A relationship become much more fluid. I think this is an interesting kind of commentary on that. I don't know if it's a critique, and it's given a good science fiction reason for being there, because you, you do need to mix up the gene pool, but, um, you know, I think he has a lot of fun with it here. Plus, the, the, that these cities then literally just become the playgrounds for these these players, these vine men, they're called, right? For the vine men and the bugs. And so here's, yeah. here's the weird thing about Game Players of Titan is interesting, because I think that there are some really well-developed there's well-developed world building and there's well-developed concepts that he's getting into, like with the political aspect of the colonialism and how things are traded and moved and all that stuff. But there's so many fucking weird, wacky ideas here with like mm-hmm. the bugs and the, and like, it, like the weird concepts, the far out concepts are there. So it's funny because there's this balance between where I just picture like, um, how do I, I'm not going to put this sensitively. We're way into this. If you've listened this far, you're a nerd for this, but there's the, the, the high as fuck Philip K. Dick versus the well thought of like aspects of it are really at play in Game Players of Titan. Yeah. There's times you don't know what's really going on. I think like yeah. that where Pete Garden, I guess when he first. Like when he's on that bender, I guess that's when it really starts to fall apart, right? Yeah. You think, hey, you understand this world, the system with the games and the wipe swap, swapping? Okay, that's all fun. Yeah. Then you have the murder mystery. You're like, okay, you know, it's a pretty clear murder mystery. The murder mystery solved halfway through and then he's just like, you know, let's just go on a bender, have our character go on a bender. And then from that point on, you never quite know where you are. So, and then there's parts of it where he's trying to do this Agatha Christie style, like, yeah. We're all trapped here and we got this murder mystery. There's parts where it has like this weird kind of Ian Fleming thing going on. It's, it's way all over the fucking place. <laughs> but, um, somehow it comes together, I guess. I think it could have used another draft. I think Wilhelm was yeah. like riding off the Hugo thing. He had rejected a couple books from P- or he had rejected Martian Time Slip, but he wanted, but the businessman and Don Wilhelm wanted a follow-up to the Hugo. He didn't, Dick didn't have anything else out yet, so he could say, like, hey, following up the Hugo, we've got the most important science fiction book of the year. That's what it said on the cover, by the way. The most Mm. important science fiction book of the year. Not that, I mean, it would have sold well if he had put on the, on the cover, you know, the, you know, written by the most highest fuck science fiction writer, like, going off and going crazy. Would have worked for some people. And I think, you know, it was what more what we have. It's bananas to me that Wolheim thought this was more deserving of a Hugo than, than High Castle. But at the same time, I do like it. I do. Yeah. Enjoy I, I, it. It's, I'm trying to find what other novels are published in 1863 that are clearly more important than, <laughs> than this one. I guess I won't do something by Heinlein, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Let's pull up Hugo's, uh, 1963. <laughs> Here while we're talking, and then, but yeah, it is funny that that Wolheim was like, you know, I think he was just trying to ride off that Hugo success. Yeah, but, that's probably all it's about. Yeah, um, but but game, I, but game players has good 
really good stuff going on in it still. I just I do think it's bananas, but I think that the stuff with the teaks is is actually we ought to give it some credit for the, the world building you put into oh, the sure. post humans here. The post humans with the religion of the game and the teaks and how they can suppress telepathy or use telepathy to hack the game and the spy versus spy aspect of telepathy, which is something that's going to be a big issue in Ubik. Right. Like, you you have if you when you read Ubik, it's, it's so cool because you think you got it. It's a great novel about the spy versus spy of post humans and precogs and like right. the anti-teaks and the teaks and the, or the or the telepaths and anti-telepaths. And then the novel in the second half is kind of entirely different, doing yeah. some other thing altogether. But that idea of how do you balance the, the telepaths with the anti-telepaths and, and is here. And here it's drugs become, that plays a role in it. Oh, and then the Vlogs have their telepathic powers and it's tied into the murder mystery. Oh, I, I actually think it's, it's well done. It's just, there's these moments, and this happens to a lot in the novels in the sixties where there's just whole parts of it. You you just give up after a while. Some of these I've novels I've read three or four times, but I'm still kind of baffled at what he's trying to say. Okay, so are you ready for the novels that were nominated in 1963? Yeah, I'm ready for it. Okay, Glory Road by Robert Heinlein, Witch World by Andre Norton, Dune World by Frank Herbert, and Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and the winner was Waystation by Clifford Samack, uh, originally titled here gather the stars so no game players the titan <laughs> um speaking of someone who's read at least three of those i gotta say uh well waystation seems like that was like a career achievement award winning over mm-hmm. cat's cradle because mm-hmm. cat's cradle yeah. is a fantastic book um and i i think that so i think some act but yeah i mean even the, the nominations i don't even see I don't even see Game Players of Titan. I mean, I love Game Players of Titan, but I don't see it making that, beating that list. And, and let's not get greedy. We won in 1962. We're okay. Um, I, I think, uh, I think PKD was doing all right. Uh, so on a weird side tangent, um, I do, I do, we loved the AI appliances in Game Players of Titan were great. Um, yeah, there. They were really fun. Um, I think, at that, but that leads me to, to ask about one of the things that I think is cool about Game Players of Titan after Man of the High Castle is that it is a really fun book. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it has real, like, fun weirdness and I, I think that's awesome. I think you're right. The, the marriages, the look, the way that, that Dick writes about marriages in here is something that he obviously has a lot to say about. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and there is like a random line in the, in there about like there's something I don't remember because I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like he's only there's somebody, he says somebody says something like he's only been married like five times, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, we were amused by how often he talks about the goddamn red Chinese. Like that just comes up like over and over and over. It's like well, I think they're the ones who sterilize the earth. They sterilize the earth. Us. Yeah, the Vugs are kind of trying to help a little bit. I loved all the stuff with the Vugs, like, transforming. That was actually really excellent prose. I think that was mm-hmm. some really good moments there. However, like, in the end, I, I do think the main thing... I think Game Players of Titan is good. I think it could have used another draft. Just, you know, 
I like it the way it is, but mm-hmm. I think after seeing that the level of quality that he did with Martian Time Slip, which was already written at this point, and I believe was already released as a serialized novel, uh, All Marsmen. Um, so, in, in a way, Martian Time Slip still came out earlier, but it was just uh, serialized in um, in, a, in a magazine. But um, but at this time, we've already seen him write like at a at a level that I think is better. I think Wilhelm was rushing to get it out because it came out in December of that year. And I think he was rushing it to get it out for the Hugos. And I think that shows. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think it would be, I don't, I don't want this novel just being played straight though. I, I feel that way about Lies Inc. too. Yeah. Which, you know, which is a, a straightforward, like, Unteleported Man is a straightforward science fiction novel. And then when it becomes Lies Inc., it's just like, well, screw it, I'm gonna go nuts. And we're not, no one's gonna know what's going on here in, you know, for part of the novel. Yeah. And you sort of embrace it. I, I, I kind of like that aspect of it. Well, um, here. like, the, especially the benders, the bender stuff. Yeah. When, when Pete Green, Pete Garden, right? He, he's on drugs and he, you know, he doesn't even remember. He, he's, he ends up after the bender going to the psychiatrist's office, but he's not sure if the psychiatrist is a bug or a human. Oh, yeah. A lot of, and then the teak battles, the, te- the, te- or the teak battles. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a lot of fun too. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Marianne or, yeah, Marianne, the daughter, who's really powerful. I forgot one really important thing when we were talking about the writing of Game Players of Titan. So he wrote, this was one of the books that he wrote in the shack, right? The, oh, uh, yeah, shack. Yeah, I know about the shack. Yeah. And I just recently read an article where somebody went and visited the shack. It's still there. It's like somebody, they fixed it up a little bit, the people who own the house. But you can, like, if you're up in Northern California, you can, like, see it. But he had a almost mile walk between where he was living and the shack where he was writing. And so at the time, he wrote this thing about how this crazy, mechanized, half-cyborg god thing was staring at him from the sky when he was walking there. Mm-hmm. That he claimed that he would see this face every time when he was walking to the shack at the time. So it's funny because I, like, for whatever reason, that happened to him when he was writing Game Players of Titan. Not as in any other book, but it was very specifically when he was writing Game Players of Titan, he claimed that he was seeing this face in the sky. And so I read this review. It was on a blog. This guy said, um... Uh, just remember when you're talking about Game Players of Titan that every morning on his walk to the typewriter, he endured the glaring empty eyes of the benevolent god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, according to Dick, he's, he claimed this, so, you know, this was very pre-Pink Laser Beam, but, you know, mm-hmm. he randomly mentioned this in a letter to somebody at some point that he, that he saw this face of god, whatever. Which is really fun. I, I don't know. It's just, yeah, you gotta talk about these things when you talk about PKD, right? You know? So. Yeah, I don't know how much of it I take seriously. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you could. Pink, pink beam stuff, there's something there. You wouldn't write a billion words. Right. If there was something there. Uh, it doesn't mean I think it should have been published or, you know. Yeah, I'm sure no, you could have just no been. one's forced to read it. I'm sure you but, could have just been fucking with the person he was writing the letter to. Like, yeah, so yeah. I saw this but I think, crazy mechanized half human like, god thing. If you read his response to uh, Ellison's introduction to Faith of Our Fathers in Dangerous Visions, 
Because mm-hmm. Harlan Ellison, he's he kind of builds up this PKD mythology that he's part of the drug culture, that he's and like, he denied it, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then he wrote back basically, no, he was on speed, but he wasn't like on drugs. You know, he partook a little bit, but it wasn't like a huge. It was much a part of his life, as some people think. Well, he claims that. It kind of became I, part of his aura. I mean, we, I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Still, I think doing uh, writing all the books on massive amounts of speed, I'm sure, had some kind of creative. You know, yeah, bananas. I'm not sure the explanation for them. If there is a man, a face in the sky, it has something to do with speed. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, any last thoughts on Game Players of Titan and this phase of PKD's work? Uh, no, that's good. <laughs> yeah, we've talked for quite a We've talked for quite yeah. a while. Yeah, I, I just... No, the, I, these are great novels, and they yeah. get better. So I think... Then ten novels after this, it's 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 all great. <laughs> just it's just so much fun. This till like back to popular, which I think is the ultimate. Mm-hmm. Is you know the it's, best stuff I think is in the zone. Yeah. Well, in the zone, um, the it is our intention, and five five more books to get you back on the line. Um, and uh, keep keep this going. So. Um, uh, we're gonna put links to to all your stuff in the show notes on SoundCloud. But um, can you just give everybody a? You're done, right? You you finished. Well, I'm done except for uploading. I, mean, I, I gotta they gotta be uploaded on a right. schedule. I'm, I don't upload them all at once, but yeah, I think right now I'm uploading. I don't know when this will be out, but I'm currently in the 70s with Deus Ares and Scanner Darkly. So when this comes out, I'll probably be I'll probably be putting up Scanner Darkly stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few more stories, and then the Valis stuff. Right. And I do the Valis, the four Valis novels, and four episodes. Four long episodes. Oh, I can't up. wait to hear your Divine Invasion one, because you've... Yeah, I'm not a fan of Divine Invasion. <laughs> um, It'll be your Cosmic Puppets. So, do you see, because... Website, or, well, see, Cosmic Puppets for us is our most downloaded li- episode. And we couldn't stand it. So, like, how that works? You just get ready for your divine invasion, like right. blowout. Be my big breakout. <laughs> so, yeah, the website is hundred pages cast at or dot pod. Or sorry, hundred pages cast uh, dot podbean dot com. I'm so used to giving the email address in my podcast. <laughs> it's not added. Dot podbean. Um, yeah, Philip K. Dick Book Club. It's a rubric in that podcast. All uh, right. Podcast. I don't only look at American writers. Right now I'm doing political writing. Mm. Tocqueville and Lincoln will be coming up, but, you know, I got the Philip K. Dick Book Club right. there as well. And all the way back to stability. So I do all the stories, all the, all the novels. So if you haven't checked it out, you can go iTunes or just go to the Podbean and find it. All right. Well, Evan- thanks for supporting. The podcast. Yeah. Well, it's uh, really great to have you on again. Um, we consider it a very important part of our our yeah. canon well, is having you. Repeat. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. It's just really. Uh, I think um, the way we do things differently just really works out. So um, I think it's really cool. Um, you get to sleep. You've got students to teach in the morning and afternoon. There. Afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. In China. There's some. 
Actually, I'm lucky today because there's some tests. So all the morning classes are canceled. Oh, perfect. Well, um, next time, maybe we'll get up in the middle of the night. For you. Might be summer. If it's summer, it's fine. <laughs> right. We'll probably... It might time out that way. I don't know how long, quite how long that takes. Well, we did this back like in August, right? Right, right. So from August to now. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll we, t- we took a we took a little break after uh, after uh, High Castle, so okay. yeah, and um, we considered that an end of our season one. But uh, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll uh, be back in touch with you. And thanks again for and uh, keep it paranoid, dickheads. All right, <laughs> thanks again. Bye bye.